Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to say. Uh, I've also been recording for the last five minutes, so. Well, that's that, that's okay. And uh, for the audience out there, I'm never late to record podcast episodes. Uh, a demon barber arrives precisely when he means to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was I was I was texting I was texting uh, a friend this morning in Sindarin and I'm like reliving my high school days as like a, a massive Lord of the Rings geek. Um how how fluent are you? Um I it used to be a lot better. I used to be able to read and write uh Sindarin, but been a hot minute since that's been relevant to my life. <laughs> Uh, I think clearly what you need is you need to download Duolingo, mm-hmm. get back on the get back on the Owl app, because uh, really, in today's job market, can you afford not to speak Sindarin? As as an academic, no. Like this is the this is it, it might shock you in the audience, but Sindarin overtook Latin as the standardized language for the uh, scientific world. Uh, I hope that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. You know how cool that would be? <laughs> Esperanza to the side, Sindarin to the front is is the theme of today's episode. Uh, clearly, clearly. As hmm. as well of course Esperanto, my bad. As well of uh, uh, of course as us talking about um the dangers of deregulating the hospitality industry. Yeah, you know, really uh we need to unionize the hospitality industry. Like uh, hospitality workers and, and this is not a bit incredibly important to to how we, we shape society. Like hospitality as craft, there, there, there is something to be said for great hospitality craft, you know, and, and, and workers in these areas being actually in charge of their conditions. And just the sheer volume of poets and priests and beetles they have to kill when they're not. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um. You know, just think about that. The next time you go and visit your local independent pie shop, knowing <laughs> knowing that so many of them are going out of business because of those giant conglomeration pie shops that are now on every single corner, aren't they? And some people can't get through the day without making regular trips in the morning to get their morning pie. And then, you know, you need your afternoon pick-me-up pie. And then if you're studying or working late, you've got to have your evening pie. I feel like you're talking about me right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we are talking about pies. Hello, everybody. It is your Horror Vanguard for the week. We are closing out our month of horror music. Um, uh, I am your co-ghost, John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, joined as ever by Ash. How are you doing today? Um, I, I'm doing well. Uh, this is, this is going to be fun. This is, this is an interesting film to, to pick out of all of the potential musical related spoopiness we could have jumped into. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. We are talking about, um, the, 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 the darling of mainstream alternative early 2000s cinema, Tim Burton, um, and Tim Burton's adaptation of, uh, Stephen Sondheim's incredible uh broadway musical sweeney todd the demon barber of fleet street but for for people who are maybe not familiar who are not that 
who are not that up on their Broadway lore, who haven't, um, you know, who didn't really get all that invested when Sondheim recently passed away. Uh, what is what is Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, about, Ash? I'm in the middle of a new kick. It might be a phase, maybe a new direction, or just another avenue of cultural exploration. But lately I found myself drawn to Logistics, an 857-hour movie that's mostly just a lockdown shot of the prow of a freighter. Uh, harsh noise and experimental black metal, and kind of perennially theory fiction. This confluence is hard to of hard-to-assimilate art didn't clash with Sweeney Todd. It unseated me from myself, my viewership, and my listenership. As if the movie looped eternally into a blur, as if the sound was chanted until I began to disassociate, I found myself asking what was I seeing? What was I hearing? The droning hum of music, human voices, sound, dissolved into a flat plane of experience. Featureless, pure potential. This film solvated into a cosmic soup of experience. An experience which reconnected me to the origin of these sights, these sounds. Working class history. The surface aesthetics of Sweeney Todd need this chemical dissolution. This is a point best articulated by Mark Fisher. The establishment of settled, alternative, or independent cultural zones, which endlessly repeat older gestures of rebellion and contestation as if for the first time, alternative and independent don't designate something outside of mainstream culture. Rather, they are styles, in fact, dominant styles within mainstream. Sweeney Todd is, in part, an echo of our repressed memories, but it is also the phantom pain of a vestigial limb. In Zizek's terms, it becomes part of the only language we have for communicating our condition, the only words we possess that can share our pain, our plight, and our longings. These crude formations emerge from dissolved pools of meaning into the shape of Howard Zinn's thoughts on the oppressed and how they find their voices. The cry of the poor is not always just, but if you don't listen to it, you will never know what justice is. These songs come screaming from our very blood. We are made of each other. We are still in the same historic, the same cultural, and the same material moment as the demon barber of Fleet Street. We must move through this history and find the resolution of these short runs stuck in a groove. Through our histories, our songs, and our remembrances, we carve new sounds and old records. Our bodies and our minds struggle to hold the weight of the decisions that have been made for us. But the hardest weight to lift becomes that of our own hearts as they ossify with a morality that is not our own. With what little we hold in our broken hands, we cry out, Sing your song, dance your dance, tell your story, I will listen and remember. Help us unpack the fading vision of a shared memory as we discuss Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Ooh, yes indeed. Yes indeed. Um, where shall we begin? Well, uh, uh, how about how about we listen to the beautiful song of the Greenfinch formalism bird? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, let's let's start with form. Let's start with um, what kind of thing this is, because it's a, it's a weird um, amalgamation. This is a this is a monstrous progeny. This is um, this is produced by an incredibly famous director. 
Um, it is uh, based on a incredibly successful Broadway show written by arguably the best musical theatre writer of the 20th century, which is based on another play. Um, so what what do you think about this on... Well, let, let, let's kind of start at the beginning. What do you think about musical theatre? Are you a, are you a musical theatre guy? Are you a, are you are you into Sondheim? Okay, so last night a friend referred to me as having theater kid energy. <laughs> I must admit, I was mildly insulted at first, but uh, you know what? I'm gonna own it. Yeah, I'm own, gonna it. own it. Own it. Own uh, it. It's. I claim this territory as my own. That- I'm I'm gonna tell them that I'm gonna tell them right now they're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, so I was I was and before that comment happened, I was watching Sweeney Todd again yesterday. Um, I, I remembered the lyrics to all of the songs, and I was just fucking belting them in my kitchen. And and midway through that, I was like, huh, yeah, I am, I am. This does, yeah, the, the theater vibe is present. How about you? <laughs> Uh, what's your what's your favorite Sondheim? Ooh, I don't know actually. I don't um like I'm not uh super well versed. Let me let me let me consider my favorite Sondheim. Hmm. What about what about you? Oh, actually, fuck. Uh, Into the Woods, maybe. I really like Into the Woods, but also Sweeney Todd. Uh, Sweeney Todd is my favorite, but I am I'm actually um fond of. Uh, his adaptation of Aristophanes' play called The Frogs, um, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I was super dismissive of Company the first time I watched it. But the more I watch it, the more I think it's actually really, really good, and it, it's growing on me an awful lot. Um, and like I, I for a very long time was not super. I was not really a musicals person, right? It was never really my thing. Uh, and I found, uh, I found the whole thing a little bit kind of baffling. Um, mm-hmm. but what actually got me into, uh, musical theater or, um, musical film particularly was teaching it. So I used to teach on a course, um, on genre film and we would do two weeks on different genres. Um, and the, the, t- the course started with two weeks on musical, uh, cinema. Uh, so we would do a classic of the form and we'd do a kind of revival or, or, um, uh, a newer version of the form. And the two that we always taught to, to start with were um, Singing in the Rain uh, and Cabaret. Cabaret, which has gone on to be maybe my favorite movie musical. Um, and Singing in the Rain, no matter how grumpy and annoyed you might feel at the at the artifice of musicals, I nobody can really resist it. It's just such, it's just... It's just an amazing, it's an amazing bit of work, and I I love singing in the rain quite a lot now. Uh, Hell yeah! So I I don't know if I I, I if I would be the same uh, as you. Uh, I was never really that into them, but I I think I think Sweeney Todd's great. I think it's I think it's my favorite Sondheim. I think it might be the best one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think it's I also think it's super interesting politically as a show and we'll get into this oh more, yeah into this more uh, as we go through but i think sometimes like i don't know maybe people who are not super into musical theater might think of it as being a kind of apolitical or not really super politically interesting form i don't know if do you mm-hmm. think do you think that's true do you think that's 
I, I think I think musicals are an interesting space. And I say this as someone who is not as well formally versed in, in the discussions around musicals. Um, but it seems to me that a lot of the musicals that have been identified as, I guess what we could say, the popular canon, right? You know, like if you were going to write a clickbait blog that's like 10 best musicals of all time, it, it would be a lot of just kind of cultural pulp and it wouldn't be stuff that I would identify as having like a significant political agency to it. And I think, but another part of the problem of that could also be just how we discuss musicals in a popular sense, focalizing the kind of craft and artifice of the songs rather than like prying out substantive political meanings. Unlike we do with cinema, which is where we largely ignore the craft and discuss other aspects. Yeah, true. And I think there are formal constraints on how political, like how political are you really going to be allowed to get in a bro- when Broadway producer uh, when Broadway producers are paying your bills, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a problem shared by Hollywood too. Like, there's a there's a political regulator on movies that have a hundred million dollar investments in them. And so that that's what we got here. We've got this weird. This kind of structurally, this and formally, this is this is a uh, a, a giallo. This is um, um, a stage adaptation. This is a musical film. This is an adaptation of a play. This is an adaptation of a Victorian serial. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like if you try, and, you can't really kind of place this into one neat taxonomic category, right? <laughs> Yeah, and, and let's 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 talk about that for a second because I think that's that's actually a good lead in um, to to so uh, Sweeney Todd. If uh, you didn't know out there in the audience, is uh, incredibly old and it's older than the play. Um, it starts off as a Victorian serialization called The String of Pearls, which has been varyingly attributed to a few different authors, but I don't think that there's a a historically proven author for the text. Um, and the string of pearls is, it's the basic form of the story of Sweeney Todd, the demon butcher of Fleet Street, uh, that in and of itself connects back to a few earlier texts, as well as some historic events that might've formed kind of the necessary cultural precursors for this thing to begin to congeal. And <laughs> that I, I think it, it, it elucidates something important for us, right? We tend in our, in our current moment, right? Well, one of the things about capitalist realism that, that again, to influence or to, to bring forth the specter of Mark Fisher um, that I think is really important is, is not just that it, it, capitalist realism has consumed our future, but it's also mulched our past. So we live in this moment where we think everything is new and disconnected from its historical antecedents. Um, but the concept of Victorian serialization is the thing that defines contemporary media. Like, like the whole idea of binging a TV show on Netflix is formally identical to binging a Victorian serialized uh, fiction like Varney the Vampire or The String of Pearls. You know, like obviously much has changed in the material construction of these cultural objects, but the format is still there. It's still intact. And, and recognizing that history, I think there's a lot of validity that emerges from that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that's a really good point. Um, and it gives this a very long kind of genealogy that we can kind of tap into. 
But we are, but you know, we're we're, we're the film critics. We're not the, you know. <laughs> so let's 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 kind of let's kind of talk about this on the level of film. What what do you think about this? As what do we think if we're going to consider this as a Tim Burton movie? What do we think about this? All right, yeah, this is how I jubilate sitting in cages, never taking wings. So this is going to be a good conversation we have right here. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this, and, and, and I guess I'll kickstart our formalism conversation with this, is that uh, Helena Bonham Carter playing Mrs. Lovett is very frequently soft focus or completely blurred into the background bokeh. And I think that this is so interesting in terms of her character and how it's positioned. And, and this most often happens when she's with uh, um, Johnny Depp as Sweeney Dodd. Um but I'm I'm not going to be able to say Sweeney Todd without Borat voice. I really tried to get it out of my system before we recorded, but it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that that works as such like the power of the visual language of cinema to communicate her not being able to reach Sweeney Todd ever, d- despite her deepest desire to do so. And also something about her is obfuscated, you know, her her. Uh, lie by omission about the status of Sweeney Todd's wife. I, I think it's, it's, I, I don't know what level of intentionality went behind that, but I, I just find that to be so clever that she's always kind of, her, her character is always pressing against this blur. Yeah. Uh, aside from the one kind of like fantasy scene, which is, which is really, really interesting because it really changes um, it really changes the color palette, lighting, and use of space. Um, oh yeah, yep. Because I, I think I, I like this a lot, but I think I like it despite it being a Tim Burton film and not because of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, because there, there is, I, I think there are some really interesting choices, but I also think. Um, the use of space and the use of CGI is really heavy in this. Um, and the way in which a lot of the space in which this happens doesn't feel to be like it's grounded in a particular reality because you have a shot on stages or on sets or on locations and then you pan up and everything else is digital. So a lot of like what I really like about this uh, show is that it's that as we'll get into, it's a show that is very sociological uh, and is very much about the way in which violence is produced on a structural level. But when you take away, when it, when it feels like, you know, um, No Place Like London, which is the great opening song, uh, it should feel like you're actually arriving in a place. But Mrs. Lovett's pie shop feels real. But the rest of London sort of feels a bit kind of like not really there. There's a fragility to a lot of the visuals in this that I think works against the movie. You know, you know, like like Edward's. There's a lot of fragility in the visual language of Edward Scissorhands, and this is a comparison that we're going to talk about a few times, I think. But that works for the text of Edward Scissorhands. All of the characters are in very fragile positions. It's it's in so many ways a movie about fragility. Um, Sweeney Todd is a movie about the demon barber of Fleet Street. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't have the same. There's a dissonance between the characters' motivations and their their emotions and their actions 
And then just this kind of like, it, it almost like reminds me, this is kind of like, like the, the, uh, Tim Burton, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. 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 Which, which it was just like, it was like eating a, a, a five pound bag of sugar worth of CGI you know, like, like that one was just, ah, there's was something weird about it. And, and I had the same vibe here, if to a lesser degree. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's bad, but it's like the opening credits where you have this, basically what looks like a video game cutscene of like blood dripping uh, through our credit sequence. Um, it was sort of like, oh, you know, it, it feels very weightless. It feels... And, we, you know, we, we can talk about the fact that this is ostensibly history, but it doesn't feel like it's a history that's happened anywhere. Ostensibly history is probably the best way to describe this. <laughs> but I think, you know, like I wanted to touch on that use of color, uh, right? You know, Tim Burton's movies are typically very drab. And when we encounter color, it's these bursts of pastels that emerge in this kind of nostalgic vision for the American suburb. Um, one of the things that Tim Burton really wanted to do with this movie was that the blood was supposed to be very present and very visual. And, and I think if that would have been more successful, it would have been a lot stronger, you know, but in a lot of scenes, the blood just kind of submerges back into this kind of really gray background. There's not a lot of like, color and and when we do see color it's it's always in these kind of like semi-muted earth tones yeah i'm thinking of joanna's outfit and um uh <laughs> whatever sasha baron cohen's barber's character's name was but like even his like that kind of like muted kind of regal navy but i think that doesn't work for the movie there, there's something there's so much energy in these characters and everything around them because of tim the tim burton's style is so subdued uh, yeah, I mean, the blood a lot of the time just looks like red water, you know? <laughs> it Like, it doesn't... Yeah. Um, and then when it gets when it gets on the characters' costumes, it goes from being, like... I, wa I wanted, like, a, like a shouting, like, Herschel Gordon Lewis acrylic blood, you know? And when it... You're, you're right, when it's spraying from people, it looks like Kool-Aid, and when it lands on their outfits, it becomes this, like, really muted, deep crimson. Um... So there is this conflict, there's this kind of friction within the film between its aesthetic and its content, between its form and content. And I suppose we should then think about the ways in which this connects to some of the criticisms of this film being uh, an anachronism, right? Mm -hmm. Or riven with anachronisms. Um, and let us just say very simply, uh, none of those matter um, and we don't care. And anyone, and anyone who is... Look, uh, that's not historically accurate. Um, <laughs> um, it's, just stop it. That's an incredibly boring way to look at a movie. <laughs> and, and the thing is, like, oh, oh, hang on, hang on, wait a second. This is really important. A tugboat just showed up, and I think it's pulling the freighter now. What? Pounding action. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. It's been oh you missed it last night when a, literally a helicopter showed up and dropped dropped a person off on the freighter and then flew away. I was I was screaming I I was falling out of out of my chair. It was it was cinematic madness. This is what you get by the way when you watch twelve hours of a mostly still boat. <laughs> um, 
I don't know if I recommend this yet. <laughs> We're going to have to, I have to wait a few hundred hours before I can give a verdict here. Yeah, of course. Um, but I, I think anachronisms are really important to discuss, right? Because you, you could have, if, if you're making a, a piece that necessarily needs its historic moment, and parts of that become very important, then anachronisms become very important. Um, settling into a historic space is really useful cinematically. However, you've got other movies where like that historic space is almost wholly irrelevant. The, the story that is told in Sweeney Todd, there's, there's almost nothing culturally that we would have to change today. You know, uh, depending on where you are in the world, you could even still have a pie shop. You know, if you're in America, it would just be a burger restaurant. Yeah. But, but the, the, the formal bones of this movie don't need its temporality. And shrugs. So pointing out, pointing out the anachronisms in Tim Burton's Sweeney Todd film, it, it feels, it feels like uh, this is just the most unimportant thing we could be talking about. And also, I think it suggests a really like narrow view on history because like Sweeney Todd was already a legend when it when it emerged, right? It became an urban legend immediately. Like to say oh, that, yeah, yeah. to say that oh well it's not accurate for the time that it's supposed to happen. It's like well what time do you think that is? And and, and there's also I mean like I have my master's degree in the study of literature from the 1700s. I'm not qualified to like discuss anachronisms from the relative time period that Sweeney Todd is suggesting. Like, like that level of expert knowledge is incredibly finite. And even that's diffused across countless disciplines, right? I could maybe do it if they were like referencing books that didn't exist in the right years, but you would need other experts to talk about the furniture and the clothing and the language and all of these things. And part of the construction, the cultural construction of critique by anachronism, one, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It flattens the past into this weird thing, but it, it, it's also ideologically driven. You know, this this is the same uh, tree that grows the fruit of like, oh, well, that, that medieval fantasy film is anachronistic because it's got people of color in it or it's got a gay relationship. You know, like like anachronism constructs an ideology rather than any kind of actual seriousness about a historically correct past. Oh yeah, completely. Hell yeah! So now, okay, let's let's uh, let's have our, have ourselves a little song and dance number. How do you how do you feel about the singing in uh, Sweeney Todd? Uh, I think it is generally fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. I'm not sure. I'm not sure there is any. <laughs> I, I, I'm not. I like. I'm maybe not the right person to kind of judge this, but I'm not sure either that there's anyone who's like a standout singer. Um, but no, I think I. I think generally the singing is fine. Um, you know, Johnny Depp sounding like a kind of off-brand David Bowie took me a little bit of getting used to. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about you? Um, I. I think there's a lot of like absolute banger performances in here i think helena bonham carter kills it as mrs lovett yeah just just the rhythm how, how she delivers that is great uh ellen ellen rickman has never flinched once before the camera and and this continues yeah in king, king. Todd. absolute king yeah legendary uh you know he he just got done uh doing some vaguely european domestic terrorism 
and now and then and then he killed Harry Potter or something. I don't remember. And now he's here. It's legendary. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. Great. I remember when I saw this and I was like, Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, and that's still my reaction. But he's he's got pipes. I really like Jamie Campbell Bowers, Anthony, Ed Sanders, you know, for a kid. Nah, that was cool. Jamie Windsor is Joanna. I don't know. I thought the vocal performances in here were uh, I, I, I have a divergent take outside of I could I could have done without. Uh, I must just said David Bowie, Johnny Depp. I could have done without Johnny Depp. But that's I don't know. As the, when you when you buy a Tim Burton, you get a Johnny Depp for free. It's just kind of how it works. Yeah, totally. And I think I think um, I think there the the interesting thing about them is the the difference between singing on stage and singing on camera. Yeah, uh, like stage singing has to be more expressive because you're trying to hit the seats right at the top, right at the back. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you're not singing live. Uh, cameras can capture everything, so there's no need to be as expressive. Um, and I think a lot of what's really good comes through in the performances of the the characters rather than necessarily the singing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't think anyone is bad. I and I really do agree with you with about Helen and Bottom Carter, but I think a lot of that is about uh, is about kind of camera performance rather than actual vo- vocals because again yeah, no, th- this this isn't like this isn't like these are not like broadway singers these are not theater people um so i i think i think a lot of the time uh i think Depp makes some weird choices <laughs> yes uh, I, I was going to say speaking of uh the performances in this one we have to talk about the johnny depp in the room yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so because I don't, oh, go on, go on. I don't know if he gets why this character works. <laughs> I, I scientifically, by way of historical materialism, know he did not at the time understand Sweeney Todd as a character, and and this emerges from. So we have in interviews jo- Johnny Depp has said that Sweeney Todd is kind of this uh, historical grandfather to Edward Scissorhands. Uh, which is which is only true to the extent that they both have uh, some kind of scissors for hands. Um, and outside of that, the characters are completely unrelated to each other. Like they have different di- different motives, mo- mo- different motivations, different ways of looking at the world, different historical pasts. There's some there's some tenuous connective tissue, but they're not the same at all in terms of what's driving them and what they want. Like Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street wants for one thing in this world. And that's to murder a man. Edward Scissorhands wants to be accepted at the bridge club. Like these are two fundamentally different characters and, and Depp's performance doesn't get that. He plays this like it's Edward Scissorhands. He's, he's quiet. He's emotional. He's introspective. And I think, we were talking about this before we hit the record button, but there's a lot of moments where Depp is really good at doing that kind of like soft, pained, emotive face that we got out of Edward Scissorhands. But that doesn't serve Sweeney Todd as well. What are your thoughts? No, I agree. Sweeney Todd is about a man who's been, been driven literally to madness by grief and his desire for revenge. 
Where, whereas Johnny Depp in a lot of this has the expression of a man who has misplaced his keys. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, oh, that, oh, that's annoying. Sweeney, Sweeney Todd, the misplaced Kia keys of Street Fleet. Uh, so, uh, like I say, I, I, I like this film a lot, but I think I like it mostly because it's a Sondheim show. I, I'm trying to, like, weigh the two in my head and contrast them, like the Sondheim and then the Tim Burton version. And I think a lot of what you're saying is right. There, there are a few things in this where I'm like, oh, Helena Bonham Carter just kills it. She's so good in this. And it's the same with like Alan Rickman's a little, I think he's underutilized because it's, it's Alan Rickman, you know, why not? Um, uh, stunning performance by Anthony Head. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> the four seconds of lines he has in this movie, just a beautiful, beautiful use of his performance. Still, still a shame that they had to cut um, Anthony Head and Christopher Lee from this movie that would have this would have been a whole a completely different animal <laughs> yeah 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 uh, so are you are you ready for uh, starting what's only going to be known as the worst discourse in London I am ready I know the audience are not but let's do it <laughs> <laughs> yes we're going to spare you singing this entire thing um, which is <laughs> tempting it is tempting um, but let's start, let's start with, so this is a slasher, right? Or in, in some construction, we can fit this into the framework of the slasher. Uh, and one of the things that I, I wanted to talk about was kind of the gender positioning of a slasher. Um, you, you know, like this, this builds off the work of like Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick and so many other people and men, women, and chainsaws. If, if you haven't read men, women, and chainsaws, it is like one of the foundational texts of reading contemporary horror and gothic cinema. I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's it's um, it's basically it's basically one of the foundational texts of this show. Yes. <laughs> yeah, read that and then read capitalist realism and then you're like at 80% of of what we do here. Yeah, basically, basically. <laughs> um but but no, it's so like a lot of the the positioning of the slasher is heavily gendered, right? It's this male slasher going after women predominantly right it's it's that kind of that's the basis of the exploration of gender that happens in the slasher um and and there's 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 some commentary about sweeney todd uh playing with that landscape a little bit and changing things up right because it's a male slasher with a decidedly you know phallic coded weapon right the straight razor um but all of his victims are men and and okay, there's something interesting going on there, but but I think that doesn't that's not quite the complication that it gets credit for being sometimes. I think that that's just a little bit of a repackaging of of the same kind of violence and that and having a very similar kind of metaphoric functioning. Uh, what are you, what are your thoughts on on Sweeney Todd as our slasher? Well, I think I think you're right. I don't know if that's that's um the big the the complication that people might think that it is mostly because i think that's reading uh that's reading a very contemporary phenomenon like carol clover's talking about first wave slashes so like late 70s to the mid 80s um and reading that backwards into a story which has its roots in the 18th and 19th century 
So I, I actually think in, in many ways, it's maybe a bit of a, a kind of like category mistake to go, oh, it, it fits into this box of a very new form. I actually think it probably fits into older forms. Uh, and probably the closest thing to it is something like um, a revenge play. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Like from the 1600s. Yeah, um, I definitely think it's it's kind of a formalistic collision you know, like like being a text that simultaneously predates the invention of the camera, yeah, as we know it today, and a text that was made after the success of like everything from Halloween to Scream. But I, I think to yeah, we're, we're I think we're doing exactly what you're suggesting we're doing when we tr- try to just just throw the traditional slasher map on this, and that's just forcing it into a mold it doesn't necessarily want to fit in as a text. And that's fine. And that's fine. And I actually think what's inter- what's so interesting about this film is that it is part of like a very long, constant reiteration of this same story, um, like which goes all the way back to you know the Newgate Prison Calendar, which uh, mentioned them, uh, the story of Sweeney Todd. So it's like to 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 kind of go. Oh well, it's obviously this one thing which is actually quite new means that we might miss stuff that comes from this longer historical genealogy and revenge the revengers tragedy or the or revenge mm-hmm. plays were very male focused and they were very much about um they very much kind of sidelined and privatized the social sphere where women were um mm-hmm. and they were very much about um either personal injustices or politics so I mean, I like reading it as a slasher, but I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's like completely necessary. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's as much, there's not as much fuel there as, as I think it's perhaps suggested that there could be, you know, I, I think you're, you're connecting this to revenge plays is, is I think much more fruitful and interesting. Uh, and of course it allows you to take a kind of bigger, um, a bigger kind of view on things, right? Because we, instead of talking mm-hmm. about just like individuals, we can talk about, I mean, the big, the big theme is, is like the, the haunted, the ghost in, in, in the ghostly infestation of London itself. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about ghosts. And I guess while we're here, let's also talk about London. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what do you what do you think about how this film talks about ghosts? I thought you were about to ask me what I thought about London. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is this is really interesting, right? Um, because we get this line from Joanna that 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 goes, "They uh, the ghosts never go away." Um, so, kind of the the conflict here. Uh, Jamie Campbell Bower plays Anthony, uh, who is a a, a sailor. I think he's just a guy who's rolled into town and one day he's walking down the road and he sees Joanna in the window and they immediately fall in love. But I guess this is a play so we can forgive that <laughs> from yep. happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like, yeah, he he, he basically is he's like, oh, I, I'm going to save her and I'm going to take her away and we're going to live happily ever after somewhere else where it's better. And, and and what I think is like the be- the single best exchange in the entire film. Yeah, best jo- jo- best jo- best line in the entire show. Yeah, yeah. Jo- jo- Joanna is like, do you really think that's going to change things? The ghosts never go away. Yeah, 
and and this this actually kind of reinforces what I was what I was talking about, which is like the attempt to put this in a history, right? Mm-hmm. The past is is you know the past is never dead. It's not even past, as as Faulkner said, like like there is always this this necessary reckoning with our, the status of our own haunting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like we, we've talked about this in, in, through, through so many different texts and yet here is another where you, you can't outrun the ghosts haunt you, right? The ghosts haunt your literal bones, you know, in, in, in the same way, the ghosts in, in question here can be locked into the bones of a home and its walls and floors. They can be locked into the bones of you as well, dear listener. And, and there's no running from that, you know, it, so, so many of the conditions that we seek to escape cannot be escaped by, by running literally. They, they, they must be escaped by being confronted by, by being negotiated and worked through and, and exercised. And I think the Joanna's recognition of that is really powerful. Yeah. I mean, London is haunted. London is haunted. That's what, um, Sweeney Todd says that's what Benjamin Barker says, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's personally haunted, but London is haunted. It's haunted for him, but also this isn't this the nature of cities, right? This is the nature of cities in developing capitalism. If we do, we don't need to place this exactly, we have a historical sense of when this takes place, mm-hmm. like, and and what is what is the nature of like he's he's returning on a ship where he's been transported to a colony, right? So what's the nature? Yeah of the haunting of imperialism. It is the constant expansionary transformative energy of capitalism itself. London is haunted on a, on a structural level, right? That's of course it's linked to us because we're the ones who inhabit the imperial Mm -hmm. night, the imperial decaying remnants. But like just what was your house built over? You know, what, what, what gets torn down and turned into burned into ash that then rains down from chimney stacks. You know what gets dug up out of the earth, and this is not this is not just metaphorical, but it's it's about the transformation of one's relationship to history itself. Like he comes back to the place where he's from, and people he walks past on the street no longer know who he is. Right. That's that's mm-hmm. what it. That's what haunt, haunting is about: temporal dislocation. Right, and that that is that is not not something that ever goes away, but is but is a condition of existence under the 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 conditions of capitalism itself. Absolutely, hell yeah, one hundred percent correct, and I completely agree. <laughs> and I think this is this is part of Sweeney Todd that I find to be so interesting, is you could set this in literally any sufficiently large city in in a capitalistic country that that is expanding and developing whether that is literal uh, colonialism or if it's this kind of internal extraction colonialism that goes on like the the beating heart of Sweeney Todd can live in so many different bodies i mean there is there is some talk that there was a case in paris that inspired the writer of string of pearls Mm-hmm. Um, so like, yeah, this is like the whole, the, the, the anxiety of the urban is intimately linked up with this idea of like temporal dislocation. 
capitalism mm-hmm. changing the rhythm of life, making it more intense, making it more violent, making it more physically painful to live through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, so, oh, go on, go on, go on. And so that, like, and that's that's something that you see, like, psychologically in this, right? Like, he's he's haunted, but he's he's. That that's something that like foundationally alters him on a kind of mental level. The the way that this movie seeks to confront and process grief, I I I think is so compelling because you have all of you you have a bunch of different ways of a- approaching that, just approaching that question of like, what do you do with something that you really you just don't get some injuries you just don't get to heal from. You have to learn to live with, you know, like you have to find a way to, to carry the weight of your scars. Sometimes there's just no other way, or at least there's no other way in the current moment. And you've got, um, each character kind of has a different look on that, right? You've got Mrs. Lovett who's attempting to invent this fantasy, right? She's, she's trying to escape her pain and her memories by just, daydreaming her way out of it yeah uh it's, sweeney todd is out for blood he's out for revenge you've got judge turpin who, who's trying to do uh trying to do that by controlling literally everything around him if he can control literally everything he could escape what, what hurts him right and then you've got anthony who's literally trying to escape he thinks he can run away from the ills of the world and even even toby right you, you see toby being set up on the rails of this kind of cultural processing for grief he, he's a little boy in a workhouse and he is going nowhere in his life. So what, what do we do with people like that? We accustom them or we make them become accustomed to grueling working conditions. And in his case, uh, lots of gin. Yeah. Um, but I think Joanna is really interesting because she's the only character that's like, no, this pain isn't going anywhere. Yeah. We have to do something about it. Right. You, you, you can't just keep doing all these various manifestations of escapism. And I think, I think, it's Todd's uh, version of this, which is the most kind of tragic, um, mm-hmm. because in a way, I think it's in in some ways it's the most kind of on a narrative level most understandable. Yeah, because it's a class. The, it's the classic trope, right? The 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 the, the hero returns to town, see, mm-hmm. gets their revenge, and rides off. But like, there's this amazing moment where Mrs. Lovett kind of challenges him and says you don't you don't even remember what she looked like anymore do you yeah you don't you don't remember really who this because the the i think the desire for revenge uh and freud talks about this in mourning and melancholia he talks about how how grief is perfectly reason mourning is fine it's completely it's completely natural and to, healthy to be expected but it can stretch and elongate gate itself into this this melancholy, this this inability to actually engage with the world as it is, because you're always trying to get back. You get trying to kind of reorder reality to get back to when this like loved object was no longer missing. Uh, and there's a there's a kind of deep violence in that, and you see that to the point where he murders his wife and he nearly kills his own daughter. Like yes. that's that's the kind of viciousness of it, right? And there's and there's n- not to reduce this down to because Johnny or Johnny Depp, uh, Sweeney Todd does not become Judge Turpin, but they 
became they become focused on the same kind of material way of managing their grief and and for both of them it becomes this violent conquest to force the world in into this mold that's the only thing that they can accept yeah you know and and you you've, you've got that mirroring that goes on with those two and and they both are are totally okay with with physically harming Oh, Joanna yeah. and Joanna's mother. They're, they're both, you know, perhaps Sweeney Todd accidentally, but they're so preoccupied with their own goals that they fail to negotiate the actual conditions around them. Yeah, I, which is a, a, exactly the point about uh, the, in Morning of Melancholia, right? Melancholia traps you. It's mm-hmm. like be, it's like being preserved in amber. You know, you, you're you're no longer capable of like you become you become sort of like hermetically sealed away from the world and any attempt to sort of bring you out of that results in a kind of in this case results in deep violence yeah oh yeah yeah absolutely anything anything that could potentially threaten johnny depp's position in this and and this is this is true for the other characters as well like helena bonham carter is terror so uh in the story of sweeney todd uh before Sweeney Todd becomes the demon barber of uh, Fleet Street, he is just the regular barber of Fleet Street. <laughs> um, he hasn't achieved demon mode quite yet. He's got work to do. <laughs> um, but he's got he's got the wife and the kids, and he's an independent businessman starting up his trade. It's 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 very like heteronormative and wholesome and hegemonic. Um, and then uh, evil Judge Turpin. Uh, violently sexually assaults his wife which causes her to drink an arsenic potion to end it all a little problematic there as far as plotting goes um and at the point of sweeney todd's return he uh he believes her to be dead uh because of a lie by omission told by mrs lovett and i think mrs lovett then finds herself in the same problem that sweeney todd and judge turpin find themselves in Right, that they have to use different styles of violence to forcibly reconstruct the world around them, rather than kind of openly facing what it is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But this is this is a kind of really crucial point to the film as a whole. They feel, which is that, uh, like it's very important that he's a judge, right? That, yes, because. One of the things I really love about this uh, this film is that it gives you. It isn't just about one one man who's driven mad by revenge. It is about that being a symptom of institutions which produce violence, madness, and revenge. Right? He's 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 the cat, judge. The judge is the catalyst. Right? Like we like it, this is just Foucault is just watching this going yes. oh my god in so many ways london is just a big prison now isn't it um i i think this is really compelling and i I think he had to be a judge you know like like one for his character and how his character functions but two for also this like social positioning right like uh, there's what what i find to be interesting is this this is a movie about upwardly mobile independent businessmen and and their plights in this economy uh we we have an independent barber uh a a woman who owns a bakery uh, a a little boy who is synecdoche for freelancers and app workers the world over 
um, and, and the labor politics of this become I- interesting, right? Because you, you have this kind of, you have that song and dance that Todd and Lovett do where, where they're discussing like, oh, we're going to kill all these rich people and, and feed them back to the poor. It'll be this literal inversion of, of how class works and it'll be this literal manifestation of eat the rich. Um, however, they, they just like wind up killing anybody. Yeah. And, and some of the, some of those people are, you know, more upper crust than others, but it's, it's vague and that's not in recognition of the uh, systematic nature of things. Right. They're, they're just slapping more band-aids onto a larger problem. Yes. But it's also, but it is also a kind of direct, like there's a, there's a directness to their understanding of their class and their class Mm -hmm. and and that class is class position, right? They know. Yeah. They like the song gives a kind of sociological understanding of where do these characters think they are, absolutely. Um, uh, which is like I think this, it's the song "A Little Priest." Um, mm, yep, yep. Which is which is maybe which is weirdly surprisingly politically explicit. It is, um, it is shockingly Marxist. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like this is this is. I said on Twitter that we were going to uphold Stephen Sondheim thought against the liberalism of Jonathan Larson. Um, <laughs> And if you are a musical theatre person, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but like, it, it has a it has a sociological view of the world, right? It isn't just about individuals doing things for no reason. They know their position and they know why they're there. It's because those above them have their boot all, like on their neck. Yeah. Um, and yes, yes, there is a kind of like there is a kind of undirected violence, right? But this is someone who has literally been driven mad by. The desire for revenge <laughs> but 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 even yes so, even so there is some there is some class analysis here and, and this this you know i chose that howard zinn quote um because one i want to choose howard zinn quotes and and two because you know the 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 cry of the poor might not always manifest itself along you know just lines but it nevertheless must be listened to you know, like like the, the this is this is a language for people with no language. Yeah, and I, I think this is really important, right? You know, the the violence of Sweeney Todd is, you know, there's there's horizontal class conflict here. He's he's going after other people that are in his same material position, often, or people who are in worse material positions. You know, it's it's sporadic and it's chaotic, but nevertheless, it was caused by the fact that a judge was able to. Uh, you know, abuse his class position and his class power, right? And, and express solidarity with the ruling class as a way to mock, humiliate, and crush someone from a lower class that had something he wanted. Yeah. And and like there's a lyric where he says, like, we all we all deserve to die. We all deserve yeah. to die. Which like you like obviously we can just read this and like this is his descent into madness song. That's that's fine. But also there's the potential of realizing again that this is not an individual thing that like there is a there's there there's issues of culpability and implication in our own involvement right the whole point is his violence is not unique that's the that is that's the whole point of the song that's the whole point of the show right the whole point of the film is that the 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 demon barber of, of, of fleet street is not an anomaly 
and and, I, and that is what I think is a more interesting way of reading that that lyric. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. I think you're one hundred percent correct with that reading. Like I, th- I think that you know, in in what what is the whole project of of class liberation? It's to dissolve the concept of class to begin with. Yeah. You know, we we all deserve to die. We all deserve to have this thing called class end and, and to emerge in a new way of being. And I think the end of the movie, in a weird way, kind of winks towards that because by by a lot of ex- estimations and ways of looking at it, the most exploited worker in this movie is Toby. Yeah. The, the little boy who uh, was sold to a workhouse and, and now he's just beaten and abused and lied to by everyone around him. And like... He's he's the one who you know, kills Sweeney Todd after Sweeney Todd gets rid of the upper class by way of of his murder of the judge. Then Toby murders Sweeney Todd. Yeah, you know, and we we emerge into this new situation where it's this it's a child, it's someone with an unknown future with no defined future who emerges at the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. Violence, violence then then becomes. Uh, instantiated again, right? It's it, it is the the it is the system, right? He's he's gotten revenge, you know. He's gotten his revenge on Sweeney Todd for for killing the person that he wanted to defend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's nothing, you know. That's the kind of grim reality about it. There's nothing unique about that violence. Yes, absolutely. And Toby's going to go on and kill more people. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like this is not to- Toby's future is not bright. <laughs> he's in he he's a workhouse child living in you know uh, movie Victorian London. There's there is nothing good that can happen for him unless he unless he gets unless he finds the one golden ticket and, and has a prince <laughs> and the pauper situation. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sets up a successful independent small business. <laughs> yeah. Unless okay, so he becomes a chocolatier. <laughs> that that a few years later, realizing the plight of his own childhood, decides to lift up another poor kid. Uh, and then the Johnny Depp cinematic universe continues apace. Oh Christ! I didn't even think of that. <laughs> <laughs> the Sweeney, the Sweeney Todd to uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory pipeline is alive and well. <laughs> Again, this is why regulation in the food and beverage industry is important. <laughs> Absolutely. If if the Oompa Loompas would have unionized, Willy Wonka would have never been able to to unilaterally decide that a random child gets the reins of his fortune and they're in their jobs. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and if if these uh, food and beverage workers, the, these kind of these service workers by way of the barber, you know, we we've we've bought we've bought this trick that we were all independent laborers that are disconnected. Ah, but if there was a union of bakers that covered all of London, if there was a union of barbers that covered all of London, uh, perhaps uh, he would have had immediate and material redress to Judge Turpin's crimes. Indeed, <laughs> I I would I would write such a boring movie because it would be Act One, something bad happens. Act Two, the people unionize and re- have immediate material redress to Act One. <laughs> the the end <laughs> we we're, we're, we're starting a new thing on the show where it's it's at what minute mark of the movie do things immediately get resolved if there's a sufficiently strong union in place uh, uh and I, I i challenge any movie to get past minute marker 10 <laughs> <laughs> um any any final thoughts to to kind of bring this all together um i i think i think this 
I, I was surprised by how much there is to discuss in here. Like we haven't really gotten to talk about Lucy enough yet. And she's such a compelling character. The use of asylums and workhouses and prisons as a way to manage underclasses. How that gets depicted in this movie, like Sweeney Todd's rivalry with another barber, like that was at one point, I'm only assuming his apprentice that he kicked around and abused. Yep. Like either the movie wants us to think that Sweeney Todd was probably a loving and supportive uh, mentor to this child, but uh, I'm pretty sure he probably also bought him from a workhouse and kicked him in the face whenever he got the chance. <laughs> yep. Yep. Almost certainly. Almost certainly. So there's the depth of Tim Burton's colon, Sondheim's colon, Sweeney Todd colon, the Demon Barber Fleet Street colon, the String of Pearls is shockingly complicated. <laughs> yeah, again, because this is this is a sociological musical. It's mm-hmm. it's also a, a quietly Marxist one, um, because it understands that that. The, the the ways in which violence is a structural force that is produced and reproduced and controlled by various institutional forces, by poverty, by the asylum, by uh, the patriarchal domination of women, by capitalism itself, by the justice system. Um, and really, when you understand those things, the, the kind of troubling position is that you end up sort of sympathizing with... The straight razor. <laughs> right. I think that that's that that's a good final final point to go out on here is that you know, like in in my last watching of this, I was just so sympathetic for Mrs. Lovett. Yeah. And I was like, I was, she lied to this guy for this this fantasy of you know li- living living in Morecambe by the sea and just chilling and and watching the waves roll in with with her man and her child and and having this kind of idyllic life and and she she gets she, her way of navigating towards that is lying and murdering and and this convoluted web that's getting woven but at the same time it's like what else would she ever have done yeah. you know her her pie shop was about to collapse the only real yep. assets she had were were these silver um, straight razors that she kept hidden in the attic, and and those were used for a different part of this ploy for material betterment. Like all of the characters in this movie are struggling for material betterment, with the exception of uh, the Beetle and Judge Turpin. And and there's like everybody from Sasha Baron Cohen's fake Italian barber, which in and of itself is a great movie title. Um, <laughs> Like every, everybody from the fake Italian barber over all the way over to Toby, they're just struggling for material betterment in a system that is literally designed to make you the worst version of yourself. Yeah. And there's so much sympathy to be had here. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I can't, I can't think of anything better to do than squat on that. Tip, tip your demon barbers, everyone. <laughs> But thank you, thank you for joining us for this episode of Horror Vanguard. And if you want to tip your demon film critics, you can do so on patreon.com slash horrorvanguard. Find us on Twitter at horrorvanguard. Um, if you're listening to this episode, you've probably already found us. So thank you for, for finding us. We've been lost in the streets of, of uh, pseudo-Victorian London for years now. Um, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>
<laughs> oh, oh there dear. we go. Oh yeah, we're just gonna we're gonna we're gonna stop. We're gonna, I'm gonna uh, yeah, good good night, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.